who are listening to the nonfiction show with Julio Scarce. I am speaking with Casey Eckhart, author of Katrina Sandcastles. Hello. Hi, Casey. This is Julio Scarce um, from the KWCW. Show. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you doing? I'm great. New Orleans is beautiful right now. It's like the best time of the year to be here. So everyone's in a better mood. Can you tell me about what it's like? Uh, I mean, New Orleans is terrible in the summertime. It's hot and humid and pretty miserable. But mm-hmm. around like late October, early November, like the weather cools off and the humidity goes down and like you can visibly see everyone cheer up. It's like, coming through a war zone every summer and then coming out on the other end, and it's just gorgeous. Wow, cool. Is this So this is, like, the best time of year in New Orleans? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is oyster season, um, and some festivals happen, but it's, like, before the big festival push in the spring. Like, it's kind of a lull where all the, like, I think the locals really enjoy being here in the fall because... Mardi Gras is out in the future, and Jazz Fest is out in the future, but like we get to enjoy the city, and it's kind of quiet around for a while. Mm-hmm. It's definitely my, my favorite time of the year here, for sure. Wow, cool. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your book? I can. Um, my book is called Katrina Sandcastles, New Hope from the Ruins of New Orleans Schools. Uh, it's a memoir about joining a team and starting a school in the ninth ward in post-Katrina New Orleans. Um, Katrina St. Castles is a story of a teacher trying to figure out how to be both a new teacher, um, which is already an extraordinarily difficult job, mm-hmm. but in some of the most dire of circumstances. Wow. Can you tell me about uh, kind of why you decided to write this book? I can. Um, I mean, kind of spoiler alert, I decided to leave the school that I helped found in 2012, and it was an extraordinarily difficult decision for me. Um, I decided to write the book, though, because as I looked back over the experience, there were so many things that I learned along the way that I wanted to share with other new teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Katrina, I mean, the, the book is intended, first and foremost, for, for teachers who um, don't maybe, maybe they don't want to read a book about, you know, teaching practices and, you know, how to do Douglas Mob techniques. Cause there's tons of those books. It's a, it's a book about like the emotional experience of connecting with kids and the ups and downs um, and the trials and the successes of working in a high need school. Can you tell me why you uh, decided to leave the school? I can, and it was a really hard decision, and like the, the book talks about it in detail, about the, the decision to stay and all of the reasons to stay, and of course, the number one reason to stay uh, as a teacher always is the kids, and they are the reason that teachers get out of bed every morning, and they are the reason that teachers work as hard as they do. Um, I decided to leave the school because the school was in transition um, and was about to expand and leadership was changing and it felt like a good time to step out. Um, so 
externally that's what was happening and internally I was really struggling with maintaining my own work-life balance and maintaining um, myself as a person so it doesn't ever get easier to be a teacher right like maybe you get better at writing lesson plans maybe you get better at working in your community but there are days every day no matter how long you're in the classroom and I was there for 10 years um, that are just really hard yeah. and I got to a point where I had to choose between myself and like continuing to give the 70 and 80 hour work week mm-hmm. and continuing to give so much. Can you tell me about how that transition has impacted your life in the last three years? Yeah, yeah I can. I think the transition out of the classroom was initially kind of hard in that you know, I had tons and tons of dreams of being late for school and really missing it. But I also have to give myself some credit for, like, stepping out and not leaving education. Like, I worked very closely with um, some of the like, people doing really good work around the Common Core state standards. So I worked for the nonprofit started by the authors of the Common Core. I worked for New York, helping on their assessments as well as their curriculum. I worked in Chicago and out in California and I helped write some of the open source curriculum here in Louisiana. Um, For me, the common core state standards are like our generation's chance to do something good in education. And I've been at the forefront of getting a lot of those initiatives off the ground. So my work is different, but I'm in classrooms all the time. I get to work directly with teachers on improving their practice and improving literacy for kids at all grades, and I think that has made a huge national impact. Wow. Can you tell me a little bit more about your work with the Common Core and how you think that's uh, going to impact classrooms around the country in the next 20 years? Yeah, I think, I don't think anybody could have predicted how political the Common Core state standards became. Um, I read the standards while they were initially being adopted five years ago. Um, and my first thought about them was they simply made sense. Like the standards just make sense. They're clear outlined benchmarks for what students should be able to do every year until they're graduating and ready to go into college and career. They're very readable. They're very accessible. Um, they're internationally benchmarked and, before the Common Core State Standards, every single state wrote their own standards. So if you went to school in one state, your standards for excellence and your standards for being ready for college could look completely different from another state. Mm-hmm. And off, there are some states that had very high expectations for kids and some states that had lower expectations. The, the Common Core kind of raised the bar for everyone, but now we have a clear picture of what kids need to be able to do if they're going to compete in a global community. Do you think that uh, the Common Core accounts for, you know, um, kind of early on failures? I mean, in the school that you worked with, um, you know, a lot of these students were not uh, not helped as much early on. Does this does the Common Core kind of need you to start at the very beginning, or does it? kind of pick up at every stage? I think that's a great question. Um, and it's one that is hotly debated around. 
Um, but the, the fact of that remains is that students um, who have been underserved, students who don't get a great early education, students who come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds or places of poverty who don't have access to great schools and great teachers, right? whatever standards are in the book on the teacher's desk, like those students are going to come behind and come with special like deficits, mm-hmm. right? The Common Core asks us to get students ready, for example, to like read on level text. Um, and one of the biggest mistakes that I made in my classroom as an early teacher is to spend a lot of time trying to figure out where students were. Like, you are a fourth grade level student reader. You are a third grade level student reader. So you're going to read text at different levels. But ultimately, students who are several years behind, even if they're struggling with the words on the page, they're not thinking like third graders if they're in ninth grade. They're not thinking like third graders if they're in tenth grade. Right? Yeah. They are thinking like ninth and tenth graders. So it behooves us to put texts that are appropriate for their reading level in front of them, like their grade level, I apologize. It behooves us to put texts that are appropriate to their grade level in front of them and find ways to help them reach and access that text. So that's the big shift with common core line instruction and literacy is putting everyone at the same table rather than putting kids into boxes. And Mm -hmm. we've done that for a long time. How do you think that the Common Core, though, affects students, you know, either negatively or positively or uh, doesn't affect them who are um, more privileged, I guess, in their earlier education? And, um, you know, like, did you have experiences in your school where one student, you know, had a a 10th grade reading level coming in the ninth grade and another student had a third grade reading level and how do you kind of balance that with how did you balance that then and then also how does the common core balance that yeah so I, I think we need to move away from this idea that the common core is balancing or doing something right okay. the common core all that is is a series of benchmarks mm-hmm. that say this is what students should be able to do at the end of the year and we've always had those Okay. Now we have some that are research-based and actually hold high expectations for all kids. In terms of having like multitudes of different levels and abilities in classrooms, I always think of two of my students. Um, one of them like struggled a lot, and she was ESL and really struggled with some basic reading skills. And I had another, his name was Al, and Al already read very, very well and spoke very eloquently. The task, though, is to bring something beautiful like Shirley Jackson's The Lottery and place it in front of both Jenny and Al and say, okay, guys, we're going to read this. And Al is going to rip through it, and he's going to read it upside down and backwards. And Jennifer's going to struggle with, like, a few basic concepts. Yeah. Right? So putting Jen and Al at the same place and saying, like, all right, we're going to read this together, and then we're going to break it into pieces, and we're going to look at the pieces and – Jen, I may give you more vocabulary here, or I may sit with you and work on one sentence that might trip you up. Or, Jen, I may give this text to you two weeks ahead of time and read it into my phone and give it to you on a flash drive so that you can listen to the text several times ahead of time and actually come to class more prepared than Al when we do our first read, right? Mm-hmm. Holding high expectations for kids is a teacher's job, 
And holding high expectations means looking at each child in the room and going, what does that child need so that they can sit at the table that they belong at, which is their grade level? Yeah. Instead of previously what we did before the shift is say, Jen, you've got to go sit at this other table because you're not ready for Shirley Jackson's the lottery yet. And what a shame because Jen in three years and she goes on to college won't have had the access to Shirley Jackson. She won't have that access to like all of the beautiful symbolism that's in there. Like that's our job as teachers and as an educational community is to make sure that every single student in our room has access to beauty and has access to excellence. Wow. Within that concept of kind of bringing everyone to the same table, you know, within their own abilities, um, how did you kind of foster community within that to help students succeed? So at the beginning of every single year, um, and I still encourage teachers to do this, and in my book it talks about, like, the things that I put up on the wall and the things that we talked about with kids. Um, beginning with the idea that reading is knowledge and knowledge is freedom. We spent a lot of time breaking down that. And we said it every single day in class. Like to read is to become more knowledgeable. We don't read because we want to summarize. We don't read because we want to make an inference. We read because something is worthwhile and rich and beautiful and we're going to gain knowledge from it. Right. And that knowledge unlocks so many doors for us. So the more that we read, the more that we build knowledge around things that we don't know about, the freer we are to make choices about our lives and the freer we are to be like not tripped up by other people's assumptions, like not to follow like one path, but have the option of to follow many of them. Right. So like bolstering this idea that while everyone is different and everyone has come armed with different bags of knowledge, that doesn't mean that one bag is less full than somebody else's. It just means that everybody's carrying something different. So the goal of a great class, like a goal of a great reading class, is to bolster knowledge so that students can become more free to make the choices that they want to make for their lives. Right? And that's the, like, throughout the book, throughout Katrina Sandcastles, that's what you'll hear and see over and over again. It's like, this idea that we build knowledge through reading, and kids did. Can you speak more to the idea of knowledge is freedom and um, how, you know, ultimately the students you worked with were freed by the knowledge you allowed, you fostered with them? Yeah, yeah. Early on in the book, I described like what I like think of as one of my like quintessential failures to the kid. He walks up to me and he says, you know, is the Superdome as big as they say it is? And I laughed at him and said, like, you're being ridiculous. Superdome is like four miles away from here. And he said, I've never seen it. And he got really angry with me. Um, and it was like this moment for me. And I think back in that moment a lot. And I think about the assumptions that we bring to teaching or we bring to communities or we just bring to others in general. Right. Only through building knowledge do we provide students with the ability to like 
bolster their awareness about current events, but also about history. Like only through reading and discussing and writing about topics do we allow students to explore ideas that they haven't explored before. I was in a classroom today um, and they were reading this book called How Sugar Changed the World. And they were learning about like the sugar plantations in the Caribbean. And they weren't learning about it because they were learning about slavery. They were learning not just about enslaved peoples of the Caribbean, but they were also learning about where sugar came from and why sugar actually like was a killer back then and making con contemporary connections to how sugar continues to kill populations, right? Not just the bowl of white sugar on a table, but how it was produced then and how it's produced today, right? Like that's building knowledge. That is taking a text and knowing it so deeply and so well that you can analyze not just the text, but how it works with other knowledge that you have around you. We can't make the assumption that kids can make those kinds of connections to their contemporary lives until they deeply understand what their past was. Um, I ran a summer institute this summer, and um, we read a whole suite of texts on Birmingham 1963. Um, so we read about the Children's March, and we read an excerpt from I Have a Dream, as well as Letter from Birmingham Jail. We read some first-person accounts of children who actually were part of the Children's March and were imprisoned in 1963. And on the last day of that summer institute, um, the shooting in South Carolina happened. And it was awful because we wanted that last day to be a day of like joy and celebration. Um, and the lesson, like, horrible serendipity, but the lesson that day was about temporary connection to the present. So we kind of scrambled and pulled in some texts that were coming out right then about South Carolina, but those students, like rather than just being angry and not knowing why, were able to say, this reminds me of what happened to Martin Luther King Jr. And this reminds me of what happened when the church got bombed right after the Children's March in 1963. And those students, because they'd done all of this reading about Birmingham and about the children who died in the church bombing in the past and the present, were able to have so much more meaningful understandings of both their feelings and also like how racism and segregation still exist in our society today. They never would have been able to have had they not done that reading. Right? So by bolstering that knowledge, they weren't just saying black people got shot in South Carolina and I'm mad. They were able to say, why is this still happening after all the work that we did in the 1960s? to fight for integration and to fight for desegregation, why is this kind of racism still happening, right? And that makes ready for college and career, but that also makes students who are truly free. They are free to make choices about how they feel about things because they are armed with the knowledge that they got from the text. Like, that's the goal of education. Wow. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, you know, in uh, in Miles Davis's autobiography, he says, um, "Knowledge is freedom, and ignorance is slavery." Can you maybe talk about how, you know, maybe students who don't get all these opportunities to, 
gain this knowledge and learn so richly from the past and from other people's stories um, are kind of slaves to their ignorance? I mean, I can't go as far as to say that anyone is a slave to ignorance. Yeah. But I can say I can say that the more that we are able to bolster students' knowledge about the world through text, the more they are able to understand what is happening to them in the present. Right? It makes plenty of sense to me that Miles Davis would say that. It makes plenty of sense that my students would come in and say at the beginning of class that, you know, reading is knowledge and knowledge is freedom, and that sounds like a jargon slogan, and by the end, understand that phrase so much better. Right? We are all slaves to other people who know more than us until we arm ourselves with the knowledge to be stronger and to make better decisions. Right? And that was the goal of my classroom always, working with students to, like, Survive Hurricane Katrina, right? And the atrocities that our government <laughs> did to the city or didn't do for our city after Katrina. And the atrocities that, like, just perpetuation of a cycle of poverty and neglect and segregation in the city before Hurricane Katrina did to our education system here. Right? Our education system in New Orleans has completely transformed in 10 years. Right? Our school system now, our district is 100% charter, which is unheard of in the educational community. Um, and we can have a long conversation about the lack of community input in that decision and in the moves that were made post-Katrina, and I'm absolutely a part of that. Um, in Katrina Sandcastles, I talk about the... the the protests that happened on our, on our campus in year four um, as, a, as we began to consider moving into other schools, um, we pushed out community leaders and pushed out community input on those decisions. And ultimately, student achievement across the board in New Orleans has increased drastically. More students are going to college, ACT scores are up, student tests are up, schools are more safe, uh, suspension rates are way down. Like, Overall, schools here are a lot, lot better. But we neglected to include communities in that decision, um, and we, that's our next step here. I think we will plateau in New Orleans in our educational community unless we find ways to involve those who have been here for a long, long time. But that's all feelings, right? Like when you take an entire district and a hurricane happens and you fire every single employee of that district right after the hurricane, then you have an entire system, thousands of people who lost not only their homes and their friends and family and their neighborhoods and their communities and they're displaced all over the U.S. and now they're unemployed, right? That was the first move that we made here. And, like, there are wounds here that, like, when you talk about Hurricane Katrina, it's like picking the scab on a wound that has not healed. Um, and I think that we have a lot of work to do to heal that wound. The wounds that, like, the shift in our education system here created 
even as we worked so hard to improve education for children. Like, the good thing I can say is that every single person in New Orleans is like, not every single person, I could say like, the vast majority of people working here, like, have kids in the forefront of their minds and what's best for kids. And like, that's a really powerful thing. And that's why, like, think with the advent of the Common Core Standards and setting really clear, high expectations for what students should be able to do at the end of each year, like, that's a very powerful catalyst to really make some meaningful reforms for kids. Like, clear, high expectations combined with really hardworking people is pretty powerful. Can you tell me about what kind of ideas you have for, you know, um, interacting with the community? I think it's hard, right, because every community is different. Um, I think that we use language sometimes when we talk about changing schools that is, like, implicitly or even explicitly disrespectful. For example, um, when a charter management organization took over <laughs> a um, like a historically black or a community school, it actually is called a takeover, right? Like, and my former school, Sci Academy, now Collegiate Academies, was involved in a takeover of Carver High School, um, which is a historically black community school. Um, Academics there are better, and some things are better there, but, like, there was a lack of community support in that shift in management and the shift in leadership and the shift in the teacher population. And what, now there's great community support, and Collegiate Academy has done a fantastic job working to involve the Carver community. Um, but at first, it was a very, very hard transition, and there were a lot of people that were very angry and very hurt. Um, a lot of communities attempted to, at the beginning, like many years ago, attempted to get their own charters to reopen historically black schools and were denied by the state. And the charters were instead handed to people coming in from outside. And that in and of itself is a pretty, like, it's a, it's a pretty hurtful thing, right? They like these people coming in from outside of New Orleans, outside of the community, get a charter on a school instead of those who are in the community. Um, I think that now that we've made this shift, the best thing that we can do now as schools and in schools is to work to involve the community around, which is harder because now that the city is free choice and you can attend any school in the city, we've lost the kind of community centers that schools used to be, right? Because at a school in a neighborhood previously, the students in the neighborhood attended and now you have students from all over the city attending one school. So in terms of community involvement, we have to find ways to pull in community activists, to pull in churches, to pull in community centers, to pull in things that are happening in the community into the schools, despite the fact that students may not live in the surrounding neighborhood. Like, I think we can do that. And I think like that's a big next step is to ask those who live in the community of the school, like how they want to be involved with the school and what they can do. Can you tell me a little bit about your personal history with New Orleans? 
Yes, I can. So um, I am a Louisiana native. We moved here when I was nine years old. And um, we lived in several different places around the state. Uh, I attended Louisiana State University and moved to New Orleans and lived here for almost a year um, before I moved to Japan. Um, And I lived in Japan for four years and was planning to stay there a lot longer um, when in 2005 Hurricane Katrina happened. And just felt like this deep calling to come back and do what I could for a city that was struggling. Um, Watching news footage about Hurricane Katrina on Japanese news was terrifying. Um, I think it's a testament to what we were speaking about earlier about reading, you know, knowledge being freedom in that what they showed on U.S. news coverage was not nearly as harsh as what we saw outside of the country. Um, It was terrifying. And I felt like I had to come back. Um, and I'm not a bricklayer and I'm not a construction worker. And what I knew how to do um, was teach. So I came back and got my alternative certification through TNPP's Teach NOLA and jumped into the classroom. That was my way to rebuild the city. It was like my way to find a way to give back um, to a place that had been so damaged. And we're still here 10 years later. Can you tell me about your history as a teacher? Yep. Um, I started teaching actually in Japan. I taught 10th, 11th, and 12th grade for two years, and then I shifted to the private school environment, and I taught kindergarten first and second grade for two years. Um, After that, I came back and got alternative certification, and I taught ninth grade reading. Um, here in New Orleans for a year and then joined the team of Sci Academy led by Ben Markovitz and stayed on that team as a ninth grade reading teacher for four years as well as the freshman dean. Um, now, after that, I went to work uh, writing my book as well as working with Student Achievement Partners and Noble Street Network and ISCME and the New York Regents and Odell Education and there's a ton of other nonprofits and open resource advocates working to put together like strong assessments and curriculum that supported teachers as they made the transition to the shifts in the Common Core. Uh, currently, I work um, for TNCP full time. My big initiative is running um, summer institute called the Good to Great Institute, where we take experienced teachers and bring them into a three week um, experience really where they learn like best practices around implementing the standards, close reading, um, knowledge building texts around a topic, um, and then they actually practice with summer school students. So that's what I did last summer and it was really awesome. Is the intention with that summer program to get all the teachers from one school and um foster community within that or just give each teacher their own set of skills? No, that's a great question. We actually um, called on CMOs from across the city to send teachers that they felt were like solid classroom managers and solid teachers 
to come and improve their practice from good to great. So we built a community with teachers from across the city, and that was a big goal of the Institute is to kind of create rapport beyond the walls of your school or beyond the walls of your, your charter organization. And so there's a community of people throughout the city to reach out to as you struggle and grapple with like this new way of teaching. Um, it's powerful to see teachers kind of like break out of old habits and really give students the chance to experience text and work together and build their independence with complex text. Um, we saw a lot of growth there. Did the teachers um, interact on a purely kind of teacher level as students with each other um, interacting with these texts? Oh, yeah. Sorry. That's a good question. No, we actually ran a summer school for rising 6th, 7th, and 8th grade students. So they spent a week with me kind of learning not only about the Birmingham 1963 curriculum, um, reading the text, learning how to implement fluency practices, um, and learning how to implement text at an expert packs, which are like a series of texts around topics. And after spending the week kind of doing intentional practice and planning and preparing, they then taught summer school in the mornings, and then we did in, like intensive observation, feedback cycles, and prep for the next day, as well as building new knowledge in the afternoon. So it was a full three weeks, one week just of like of training and working together, and two weeks of actually working with kids, implementing these practices, and making tweaks and changes. Wow. And now we're in the process of doing observations in those classrooms to offer ongoing support. So, I mean, that's the, the best part of my day right now is going from school to school and seeing these teachers who just took big leaps of faith with their practice and just seeing how powerfully their practice has changed and how much kids are learning. So... So one of the teachers who attended the Good to Great Institute was the teacher that I spoke of earlier who was teaching the text about the sugar industry and the sugar plantations in the Caribbean. Um, and she has transformed her practice. In her classroom, students are working with that text and they're talking about why sugar is a killer, but also engaging in the text or reading independently as well as doing read aloud in small groups and read aloud as a whole group. I mean, she is just doing really, really powerful work with kids. And those kids, just like kids across New Orleans, come with a wide variety of deficits and abilities and struggles and background knowledge. Um, our classes here are very, very diverse. Um, but we know that putting complex text in front of kids and letting them grapple with it and struggle with it and work with it is the right thing to be doing in the classroom instruction. Thank you. Um, can you talk to me maybe a little bit about the um, the news that you saw covering uh, Hurricane Katrina while you were in Japan? Yeah, so I think I think the biggest difference because you know we're connected to the internet. Like I I can go and look at clips from CNN and the coverage that we saw about Hurricane Katrina you know, on YouTube and on their website and not just CNN, but ABC and NBC and everybody and their brother was covering it. Um, but there's a, almost a deadpan coverage coming from our media. Uh, we saw the same shot over and over again. Um, you know, the car underwater and the guy on the roof and 
the Japanese media had a lot more footage and a lot more images that were extraordinarily startling. And the tone of their delivery, um, which is kind of uncharacteristic for Japanese media and my, you know, few years of experience with it, the tone of that delivery was outrage. Um, and there are a lot of reporting around how can a country as great as the United States allow its population to sit and struggle with no help for days. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, a sense of outrage there, a sense of this looks like the poorest third world country, like a disaster, a catastrophe in the poorest of countries. And this is not the poorest of countries. This is the United States of America. So a lack of understanding about the lack of response from our government was all over the media in ways that it just wasn't here. Mm-hmm. And I have yet to figure that one out. Um, but I think a huge, one of the motivating factors for me coming back was experiencing media from both those perspectives and listening to and seeing so much more captured on Japanese media than we were shown here in the United States. And hearing that outrage and that anger and that questioning and that, you know, it's been two days and there are still people screaming for water on top of their roof. Where is the government? Where is the support? I mean, it is still outrageous. It is still one of the great atrocities of our day. I think we will look back on it. Hopefully we will look back on it. Um, If we can get this education thing right and we can get knowledge and freedom to people, I think we will look back on it as one of the greatest atrocities that's happened in contemporary society. The neglect um, that we showed the people who were left here. Um, is atrocious. There's, there's no excuse for it. And the city is very different, and we've come back, and kids are learning, and our community is growing, and New Orleans is a beautiful and vibrant place to be. Um, but that work was not done by the federal government, and that work was not done by, by anybody, but people who rolled up their sleeves and did it here. And it is a very, like, New Orleans is a very different city than it was before the storm. It's a very different population here. Um, the housing market has skyrocketed. Many of the like public housing projects have been torn down and replaced by much smaller areas um, that don't allow for people to return to public housing or to get assisted living or Section 8 living, like, we have gentrified large swaths of this city that used to be majority minority and majority black. And we have changed the visual structure of the city for sure. Um, and I don't really know how I feel about that either. There, there are good and bad things to the progress that has been made here in New Orleans. Um, and I think that nowhere is that reflected more starkly than in the education world here where we went from one large district to charters. We went from um, a city that was majority black to a city that is now like majority white. Um, we went to from a city that actually was an affordable city to live in to one that has comparable rent rates to places like Denver and California. 
Um, and I think like that has done some damage to the diversity of our community. Have you uh, read Dave Egger's book, Zaytun? Yeah. Can you speak a little? I mean, did J- Japanese media cover, um, or did you see any media coverage at all of, uh, you know, kind of the uh, camps slash prisons um, that the government had in the book? Um, mm, no, I didn't. I mean, reading that book, like that story was a surprise to me as well. Yeah. Um, their coverage was more, um, and I followed it a lot more in the first days because keep in mind too, that Japan is half a day ahead, right? And the levees didn't break until after the hurricane had passed. So I went to bed in Japan thinking my city is fine. And woke up and spent a whole day away from TV or media and radio um, and came back that evening to see a city underwater. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's a, I think for the Japanese public, there was an even more stark contrast because you know, we went to bed thinking things were fine and woke up and things were not. Wow. Can you maybe address... Um the ideas, you know, you, uh, we spoke before of knowledge um, being freedom, and uh, you know, within the American media, um, oftentimes we don't get, uh, you know, a full picture of things as they happen, unless you know, like each person kind of has to seek it out. Um, how do you think this affects freedom within our communities and within the country? Well, I think that idea that you just referenced of seeking it out is in and of itself the first thing that we need to push in our education system. This idea that like what is on the surface is not the only thing that is there. Um, my father has worked in like, small town independent newspapers his entire life. And like, I was brought up with the idea that like, you don't accept what the large media tells you until you've looked at what other sources have told you. And that's like even pre-internet, like you seek out your own truth about a situation because everyone brings a piece of bias to it. Right. If we don't teach children in this age of conglomerates purchasing all of our media sources until our media is all going to come from two or three different groups. If we don't really push our children to seek out knowledge as they see it, rather than how these sources tell us it is, then we're going to have no true knowledge and we will be at risk to lose our freedom. I mean, I think that's why small publishing houses like microcosm publishing are so important and why, I chose to publish with them rather than seeking out a larger publisher um, because there's, there's a truth to small publishing and there's a bias there as well. Um, and there's a niche there as well. But I think the more we can encourage children to seek out truth from several different sources and several different places, the more informed they will be. Um, 
and that's where I get the most frightened about where we're going is I think we get so much information so quickly that we don't spend the time to really think about it because the next piece of information is already there. Um, Henry David Thoreau writes about it in chapter two of Waldo and he says like, you know, and this is 150 years ago, he writes, like, we barely can go to sleep for half an hour before popping our head up and going, what's the news? And we're reading about the guy who, like, was, I think it's like hurt or shot in his eye without really looking at the fact that we can barely see ourselves, right? And I think, like, that was true 150 years ago, and it is especially true today. Um, our media is presented with information that is so fast and so bite-sized and so surface. Um, we have to take the time to truly examine what's being presented to us. And the only way to do that, just to cycle back to it, is to teach kids to really spend time with a text in front of them and really question the words and the structure and the bias of the voice that's coming out of those pages, whether it's Henry David Thoreau or whether it is Dan Rather or whether it is Jon Stewart, right? We have to question like through that questioning, we build our knowledge and we gain more knowledge and free ourselves from, like, I guess the trap of mediocrity, the trap of, of only one person telling us what we should think. Wow. Thanks for that response. We're kind of, you know, moving away from the book. Is that all right with you? Yeah, I mean, we like. I'm happy to talk about whatever, whatever. I'll keep trying to mention it because it's a it's a great book, right? Like it's, I, I strategically chose not to write a book filled with here's how to be a better teacher. Mm-hmm. I wrote a book about like here's how to love kids, right? The book is about loving children and wanting to do what's right by them, right? So it's not gonna. Like the book is ultimately about that love, the love that teachers have, and like the love that drives us to work as hard as we do. Um, so, um, I guess I had a question, um, and it's kind of relevant to what we've been talking about. Um, how do you think? And I'm not sure what your stance is on this, but how do you think that uh, the Snowden um, kind of uh, story with about you know the surveillance programs that have been happening in the United States and around the world um, affect our knowledge and make us you know knowing this? Do you think this, it makes us more free? Um, and does the surveillance itself limit our freedom? So I think it's hard, right? Like, I mean, I personally have some, like, very strong views on it. Mm-hmm. But I also think, like, other sides have very strong views on it, right? I think that, like, any time we allow our government to trade our privacy for their definition of freedom, 
then we're trading something very, very important. Right? When the, I would argue that when the Patriot Act was signed and put into place, we traded a very, very important piece of ourselves, which is our right to privacy, for what we perceived at the time as the need for safety. Right? And I respect that need. I respect the need and the drive of people, especially at the time, to want to feel safe and to be willing to sacrifice things like privacy in order to feel safe. Um, I think that we made a big mistake. Uh, I think allowing the government to look at things in our lives for whatever justification without our knowledge is wrong. I don't, I don't live in a country like, like the United States of America um, because I want my rights violated. I live in a country like the United States of America because I have a tremendous amount of rights. And I think like that's the side that sometimes we can get caught up in and we forget when we have these conversations about like invasion of privacy. We also need to remember that we have an extraordinary amount of freedom in this country um, to say things like we're speaking now, right? Like we have the freedom on public radio to speak out against our government, mm-hmm. to speak out against our media, right? That is a right that the vast majority of this world doesn't have. Yeah. So I think like even even as we like rebel, we need to remember what our freedoms actually are. And ultimately like that's what we need to teach children, right? Read, learn, question everything, but also like have gratitude. We have so much to be grateful for, um, even as we work to make things better. There's a lot to be outraged about, but there's also a lot of gratitude to be had. Yeah. Um, have you heard of Samuel R. Delaney? Uh, the name sounds familiar, but I haven't read anything by him. In uh, a video about him, he says um, something along the lines of, you know, uh, hearing what everyone in a classroom has to say and, you know, having everyone put their hand up, even if they don't know the answer, just to teach people that they are important enough to say what they have to say is the way that you um, kind of stop evil or prevent evil. Can you speak to that at all? I can because they actually did something in my classroom called all hands. It was a very common technique where when a teacher poses a question and calls for all hands, all hands go up. Right? And it's just something that we practice with kids and something that we work with with kids. And just said, like, when I call for all hands, all hands are going up. And if I call, that means I can call on anyone in the room, so you better have something to say. Right? And as an instructional technique, it's fantastic because once you get students used to all hands, they're constantly thinking mm-hmm. because they better have something to say because they don't want to look stupid and they want to, like, be able to contribute to the conversation. And it's a great way for a teacher to be able to include everyone in the conversation, even those who are shy, even those who are struggling, even those who are like, you know, 
for whatever reason, not wanting to participate, like all hands allows for students to join in. But I do think like it has to be for significance, right? Calling for all hands means that Al isn't the only one participating. Jen has a voice too. Um, conversations should include everyone in a classroom, right? Whether we're talking about the common core or we're talking about great teaching, right? The most atrocious thing I ever see in a classroom, whether it was my own or in a classroom now, is a student not learning. Wow. Thank you for that answer. Um, yeah, the, the first time when I applied to work at Sci Academy, um, the leader of the school came to see me in my classroom at the time when I uh, was teaching at Clark High School. And he sat in the back of the classroom for the full 90 minutes and observed everything that was going on. And afterwards, we met and he gave me some feedback and he gave me some really powerful feedback about like what was going right in my classroom. Um, and I was expecting him to say, you know, give me a bunch of data. And he's like, these children feel loved. They feel safe. They listen to you. Like you're not afraid to tell them when they're wrong. You're not afraid to tell them when they're doing something right. Um, but they feel very loved in this room. And I was like, well, what is the worst thing you saw? You know, <laughs> like constantly looking to improve. And he said, the kid in the back of the room with his head down was the worst thing that I saw. Like, that child learned nothing in your classroom. And that's the worst thing that could happen in a classroom ever is if the child isn't learning. And like, I've held on to that, you know, sparkler and like it's lit like dark moments throughout my career, whether in the classroom or beyond it, right? Like when children aren't learning, we're not doing our job. And I'm not talking about teachers. I'm talking about all of us. So with that in mind, what responsibility does every person uh, have to children and to students and to their peers? Like what, can you speak to that? Yeah, I think, I mean, from a personal perspective, and that's why I would tell people to read my book, Katrina's Sandcastles, is that, like, we have a personal responsibility to understand how hard it is to actually be a great teacher. We have this assumption in this country that a teacher is like a widget that you can replace in and out. And, you know, they just deliver this material and kids learn it. Like, being a great teacher is like being a great artist. It takes tons of time and technique and skill. There's so much on the back end that no one ever sees. Um, our entire community has a responsibility to understand just how difficult that work is, especially in urban schools, especially in high-need schools, um, especially in underserved schools, and find some way to get involved, right? Like that's the lever that we spoke about earlier, of community engagement and actually building schools as the centers of our communities and neighborhoods again. And the first step is to like understand just how hard the school is working and find ways to help out. Um, I think on a bigger picture, we have responsibilities to children to like push them to think more deeply. Um, my sister is 19, um, <laughs> which totally ages me wild. And um, I, I love her and she's so brilliant. 
Um, and I want her to think more deeply about what she hears and what she reads and what she sees. I want her to get her news from someplace besides BuzzFeed. I want her to think more critically about things like Snowden. I want her to think more critically about past events. Um, and I want that for all kids. And that's ultimately, if we want to have a society that is truly ready to compete, one, in a global market, but also ready to like lead and be the thinkers that we want them to be when we are old and they are running our world, we have to encourage them to stop taking things at face value and really dig in, and that takes time. So finding ways to be involved with schools, um, whether it is joining the volunteer day or helping run the book fair or just going and hanging out and seeing what you can do at your community school um, is huge. And there are tons and tons of organizations that are doing work like that. Guaranteed there's a maker's fair somewhere nearby, um, which brings together communities around schools and people in the community teach everyone else how to do something. Like, it's fabulous. Um, I saw another teacher this week who um, is reading a book about, like, female bicyclists doing, like, the century rides back at a time where, like, that was looked down upon by LAW and others. Um, they're like, let's create some kind of community bike ride or let's um, organize a, like, bike school bus so that students who actually do live in the community can, like, come together and ride their bikes to school together, right? Like, Finding ways to like connect with their learning in school to community events is so incredibly powerful. We don't do it enough. What can, I mean, so you spoke a little bit about what an individual can do um, to help teachers and to help schools and help students. Um, is there more that institutions so you know school districts and schools themselves and uh, school boards and you know, state education um, programs should do can do yeah I mean I think just returning to what we spoke about a lot earlier right we spoke about like the common core and there's a huge backlash against the common core and it never fails to amaze me how few people have actually picked up and read the standards. Um, and it is those people who get really loud, right? It is the people who are the least informed about what is actually good for kids in terms of education that get the loudest. Um, so I would encourage anyone listening to this to just go read the anchor standards for reading. Um, Go read the standards for mathematical practice. Like, take a look at what those standards are actually calling kids to do. Because it's very, very common sense, right? Like, students should be able to, like, analyze multiple texts. Students should be able to look at multimedia. Students should be reading a balance of fiction and nonfiction texts. Students should be able to, like, cite evidence when they speak about what they've read, right? We spend so much time asking students, like, what do you think about this? And not enough time asking, like, what does the text say first? What do you think about what the text says? Now apply it to what you're thinking about, right? 
we as an educational community need to like get behind a movement towards higher standards and holding high expectations for all kids. So whether that is attending your school board meeting, whether that is reading the standards and getting informed about it, whether that is like writing a op-ed or a blog or attending one of the state department meetings, right? like this is the movement, right? If you read about what the standards are calling for in terms of more complex text and allowing every child the opportunity to like sit at the same table and like, we cannot go back to a place where we close our doors as states and as districts and kind of do our own thing. Um, a teacher's job is to bring those standards to life, but having a set of standards that are like equal and high and aligned internationally um, means that teachers are teaching to the right bar. And previously we set like a bar that was different for every state. Um, which meant some kids got a better education than others, and that's just wrong. Like, no matter what you feel about, like, how the standards are implemented, that's totally different. How we implement the standards, what text we read, what curriculum we use is different from the standards, but setting the bar for excellence is absolutely necessary. Can you speak a little bit to why there's backlash and who it's coming from? Um, I mean, it's, I think in some ways the backlash towards the Common Core is simply because it came out at the same time as President Obama um, initiated his Race to the Top initiative with Arnie Duncan, and part of the, part of the requirement for Race to the Top was that high standards, internationally benchmark standards are put into place. Um, I think this led to this spiral, right? Because while states who applied for the Race to the Top funds didn't have to choose the Common Core state standards, most of them did because they were already written and they were already approved and they were written by a huge consortium of like national experts from a representative, with a representative of almost every state. Like this is a governor initiative to create a set of standards, not a federal one. There's been a lot of misunderstanding around that. Um, people assuming that it was a federal initiative rather than one of governors coming together going like all of our standards are different and that's kind of wacky don't you think right <laughs> like a student in one state learning something totally different in fifth grade than a student in another state and one learning something that's like age appropriate and one learning something like that has really low expectations like that's not right um, there's a lot of conversation around data mining and assessment that's aligned to Common Core. But again, right, we've always had assessment. We've always had standards. Um, we've always, we have assessed standards since, you know, for years, for decades. Um, changing the standards doesn't change the assessment. The assessment just got harder because the standards actually set the bar where it needed to be. I think finally the backlash simply is because Common Core got tangled up with being democratic or being liberal. It's just an easy pick at. Um, our illustrious governor, Jindal, was in support of the Common Core until he decided to run for the presidential election and suddenly he was very anti-Common Core. And I was at an event where he came out and said, the Common Core is really good for students, and I'm so glad we have internationally benchmarked standards. And two weeks later, he's turning around saying something different. It's 
It has nothing to do with the standards and everything about like politics. And so again, we're back to the conversation of actually do your reading. Instead of having an opinion that you get off BuzzFeed or some like brief clip from Jon Stewart or Tom Brokaw or Fox News, actually educate yourself on what the facts are. Until we do that, we, we can't move. And we end up in conversations about nothing. I made my students read the standards. <laughs> we read excerpts of the standards, like, here's what I'm teaching you. Here's what you know how to do. Like, let's talk about that. Let's, like, let's return to the idea that, like, just understanding the central idea of a complex text, that's just a good idea, right? Being able to assess the advantages and disadvantages of using a video or a photograph or a painting instead of a written representation of the same topic. Like, that's just a powerful thing. And that's standard seven at grade eight. Right, when you read the standard and you go, actually, that makes a lot of sense. Yes, eighth graders should be able to do that. Like, unfortunately, that's not the end of the story. How um, impactful and uh, are are standardized state tests? Impactful in what way? Uh, sorry, that was a broad question. Um, without that was fake. Um, like, are they? Do you think that they're good or bad? Do you think that they could be improved? Uh, how do they impact the classroom, and how do they impact the way that education is shaped from a state level? Yeah, it's a very timely question, given that uh, Arnie Duncan and the Obama administration have just come out and said 2% of class time should have been on testing, um, which I disagree with. Like, we, we use assessments. The purpose of assessments are to find out where kids are, where they're struggling, and where we need to act next, right? When you look at a test like the ACT, however, the entire thing is a reading test. It's full of complex text. Even the science section is full of complex text, right? We, I think, as a community, have shifted so far into testing that we're just testing the wrong thing um, and looking at the data from tests in the wrong way. But Assessments are, for better or for worse, like hugely impactful. They, in New Orleans, they are a huge part of the SBS score, which is like the score, the school score of quality, basically. Um, tests have like come to determine things like like teacher bonuses and teacher jobs. Like they're wrapped up very tightly with teacher evaluation. Like we are very dependent on state testing data. Um, the advent of the Common Core, two big consortium came out, Smart Balance and Park, um, to create Common Core aligned assessments. Um, the assessments are hard; like they are, they are much harder than what we are used to looking at, at least here in Louisiana. But that's because our bar was a lot lower before the standard, right? Like our former GLEs, our grade level expectations were far lower in terms of their expectations than what the Common Core is. So the tests have improved. They require students to use evidence. They require students to explain their thinking. 
They require students not only to know words, but what the word means in context and what the nuanced meaning of the word is. It requires students to read a balance of both fiction and nonfiction texts, as well as read multiple texts and analyze them and put them together, right? And that's hard, but that's the work that kids need to be able to do, right? Because if kids can't look at multiple texts and find out how they connect and analyze whether or not they're telling them the right thing and analyze the strengths and weaknesses of that argument, they'll never be able to develop those arguments on their own. Can you speak to uh, how money impacts um, education? You know, in this country, I believe, you know, for the most part, almost all public schools are funded by local property taxes. Um, at least that was my experience in California. Um, and, you know, because of that, in wealthier neighborhoods, you get schools that have a lot more money um, and within you know poorer neighborhoods you get um, schools that have less money and then as a result you get you know sometimes better teachers going where they know they can get a higher salary um, can you speak to that and and how it impacts the education of everyone and how it um, you know, uh, stops, stops or slows down uh, progress? Yeah, I think it's harder to speak to how schools are funded because that is a wildly complicated system and structure. Yeah. Um, it is, the short answer, though, is you're exactly right, right? Like, schools that are in more affluent areas get more money, they get more resources, they get more attention, they draw better teachers. Even if teachers aren't getting a better salary, and in many, many cases they don't, um, in many cases, in most cases, public school salaries are, are set by the district. Um, more often than not, it's set by tenure rather than performance. So you make money just by, you know, the more time you spend in the school, the longer, um, the more money you make even if you are a terrible teacher. Um, schools that are in urban districts, schools that are in poorer districts, um, schools that are high needs do receive fewer resources. They do receive less money. They do receive, they have, you know, populations that are like far exceed those who are in more affluent areas. And they often receive like the newer teachers or the worst teachers or, you know, teachers who are so inexperienced, like I was, like I didn't know what I was doing. Um, you know, you go in with really good intentions and you work hard. But um, the division of money becomes a really sticky issue when we draw those lines along socioeconomic areas for sure. Um, we don't have that problem in New Orleans anymore, and that I think has been one of the like victories here. Because we are a charter system in New Orleans and you can choose where you want your child to go to school, you enter a statewide lottery, or, sorry, a citywide lottery, and you say, I want my child to go to Bricolage or Renew or Green Charter School, and they'll bus you there. So 
charters are funded in the same way and neighborhoods aren't like neighborhood schools are no longer funded differently based on who lives there. Wow. So in New Orleans, every student comes with the money that they come with and that money goes to that school. So there is huge incentive to recruit students. So it's actually a like student recruitment issue here in New Orleans where like you see bulletin boards and on the sides of buses and on, you know, all over the place, like ads for schools, like come to our school because if they can recruit kids, then they receive the money that comes with that kid and their school has more resources. So it's a, it's a really interesting model. I know this is a very simplified question, but do you think that that is a, a good thing? It, I mean, do I think, what is a good thing? The the you know um, schools advertising to students and uh, trying to get more enrollment to get more money. Um, do you think that that system is uh, is good for the students and is sustainable? Um, I think it's an imperfect system, and I think that the system before was imperfect. Right, like each system has its advantages and disadvantages. Right, like. The advantage to like advertising and trying to recruit schools is it forces, I mean, just like a free market system, it forces schools to try to perform. Um, it forces schools to try to be the best that they can be, right? It forces schools to try to do what's right for kids, to improve their test scores, to improve their environment, to get kids off and on to college, um, to lower their suspension rates, to provide services to exceptional children. Right, like competition in this case has sparked a lot of really good things. Um, and that means ultimately better things for kids. Mm -hmm. um, it's not a perfect system. Um, I think there's an imbalance of resources, um, but there's a high amount of accountability in a place that there wasn't a lot of accountability before, right? Um, Schools have to perform here or they are shut down. Um, and that's good for kids, right? We don't have failing schools in New Orleans anymore. We have poor performing schools that are working frantically to get caught up before they get closed. And that's a better system for kids. Yeah. So um, no system is perfect. And I like, there's a lot of ambivalence that I talk about in the end of my book about that system and about the like, no excuses charter movement and a lot about like what we've done inadvertently in New Orleans. Um, and I continue to have those kind of ambivalent feelings um, as I kind of take a step back. But ultimately, like what we've done here, we have improved things for kids. Um, it's come at great cost and great sacrifices. And I don't, I don't think we're fully aware of the implications of those. And, like we spoke about earlier, like we've got to get community right around these schools um, because that's a wound that we still have to heal. But kids are going to better schools and they're served by like, a stronger, they're, they're served by a system that's focused on improving them. And that's important.
Can you talk to me about um, what influences you had growing up and kind of what led you to Japan initially and to be a teacher and um, how, you know, you grew up affected uh, your interaction with students? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I grew up in a very, um, a very, very, like, literate household. Like, my father um, paid our allowance because we read, for example. Um, so I read and read and read and read and read because, like, that is how I bolstered, you know, the $10 a week that I got to spend very frivolously, I'm sure. Um, but my father always pushed this idea of, like, be critical thinkers about what's being presented to you, and I think that's just because he worked in, like, independent media his whole life um, and he became a journalist and became a reporter and ultimately an editor because of the desire to present people with more information than just like what comes flashing through them um, so I grew up in a place where like we questioned ideas and we talked about ideas and I'm very very fortunate for that so when I got to college like you know spent a lot of time doing that, like working on founding critical mass in Baton Rouge, Louisiana and running vegan food co-op out of my apartment and, you know, hosting every punk show that I possibly could at my house. And like this idea of generating knowledge um, and just constantly seeking out people who are thinking and people who had read something that I hadn't read. So it's just a very running long-running theme in my life. Um, I went to Japan because like, it was actually like, the beginning of the book is like I ended up in Japan because I was failing French in college and my, my advisor told me that I would probably fail Japanese if I tried another class and I did it because I'm super stubborn and loved it and moved to Japan um, largely based on the experience of learning Japanese and just how difficult but how beautiful it is as a language and as a culture. Um, I can't think of a time where, like, I didn't want for myself to, like, seek the truth and seek the truth through reading and seeking the truth through different perspectives. So when I became a teacher, like, that's what I wanted for kids as well. Like, 100%, like, my desire for teaching came from a place where, like, I wanted for kids the experience that I had where, like, the idea of questioning was encouraged and the idea of, like, seeking out new information that may or may not change my ideas and seeking out others' knowledge um, was just a very normal thing. Um, and it really surprised me when I got to college and realized that, like, a lot of people weren't doing that. Um, and I didn't want that for myself, for my life, and I don't ever want to question things at face value, and I want to always be willing to have my mind changed but only because it's been changed by information, which makes me more free. And that's what I wanted for my kids. Um, which is why I always read excerpts from Letter from a Birmingham Jail with them. Um, and why I wanted them to know who Marcus Garvey was. Um, and why we read about what happened to Native Americans and why we read excerpts from people even of the United States, right? Like I want kids to have different perspectives so that they can make their own decisions about the world. 
and it's okay, like, if their ideas are completely different from mine, as long as they can explain why, right? That's what we want. Like, that, that is what will make our society better. And every single time I have conversations about poverty, and every single time I have conversations about explicit and implicit racism, and every single time I get engaged in these conversations about contemporary events and what's going on, like, I come back to this idea that, like, it all begins with how we educate our children. It all begins with what kind of education they're receiving, and that is a fight we're fighting. We're not educating them to think liberally. We're not educating them to think as a conservative, we're educating them to think. And that only comes through a huge, deep, and wide pool of knowledge, right? They can't be critical thinkers until they are truly educated around a multitude of topics. And that's the work that we have to do because if students can't read, and many of them can't read, the national reading level in this country right now rests at about seventh grade reading level, which is why our media dumbs their text down so that people can read it, and that's the wrong move, right? Like, if kids can't read by the time they leave high school and read to learn, um, then we're lost. Then we lost. So that's the battle that I think we have. Um, and that's what made me so excited about Common Core, it's such a huge theme in those standards. So say, like, this is what kids need to do. And not because we want them to think one way, but because we want them to be able to think about the knowledge that they have meaningfully. Can you speak to um, the, you know, any, the way, the way race uh, was thought of or not thought of or talked about or not talked about within your classroom and within your school? Uh, so I think it's hard to talk about New Orleans without talking about race, mm -hmm. but it's the one thing we don't really talk about um, because it's such a sensitive subject here. Um, I think the first step in talking about racism is for both students and teachers, like, and I, like, would in my classroom admit, like, we come together, like, with racist ideas, everyone. We can't help it, right? Like, it's presented to us 24 hours a day, pouring out of every single rectangular lit up screen, out of our radio, out of our TV, out of, like, every single billboard that we see, like, we are inundated with stereotypes and images that cement our ideas about what women are and what African Americans are and what Hispanic people are. Like it just is, it's really hard to fight against that. Right. Um, so in my classroom, I would like, there's a, a study, like they ask kids to recognize different famous people. Um, and like hundred percent of kids can recognize Ronald McDonald and only a few kids can recognize Abraham Lincoln. Right. So I began conversations about races like that. Like we can't help it. Like our society and media and corporations push these ideas and these stereotypes at us all the time. What we have to do is think about that. Right. 
not think about it because we want to form an opinion just yet, but let's just think about it. And uh, over the course of a semester or a year or a month or a unit, like, let's return to this idea of, like, thinking about it. And what knowledge do we still need to think about this more and more deeply, right? Like, we can't have a conversation about race until we're truly educated about, like, race, where racism comes from where it comes in our up in our culture and we don't notice it and where we do notice it. And only then when we're on with that knowledge, can we begin to free ourselves and to think differently and at least to be aware of how racism exhibits itself in our world. Right. We shouldn't be shocked by things like the shooting in South Carolina. We should be outraged. Um, but we can't just be outraged. We have to know where these things have come from in our history. We have to know like what actions have worked and what haven't. Um, we can't just read about it and shake our heads and stick our heads back in the sand. Um, yeah. Could you talk about um you know, I, I know there's a lot, but um, about the most impactful or uh, texts that you thought had, um, yeah, like the most influential texts within your classroom, and you know, if you could uh, only give a student a few texts, what would they be? Oh, that's so hard. <laughs> um, I mean, the the great thing about reading texts with kids is you're never really sure what's going to resonate with them. Um, I think one of the mistakes we make in an educational community, especially with high-needs kids, is we assume what they're going to be interested in and what they're not going to be interested in. And we end up reading a lot of Walter Dean Myers with them instead of reading like a wide variety, not just of Walter Dean Myers, but a multitude of other things. Like, it's not right for us to assume what kids are and are not going to be interested in. And for that reason, we really tried to read with kids around topics, like, over time. So the example of Birmingham 1963, like, we read this uh, fiction text called Walt The Watson's Gun to Birmingham with them, um, as well as excerpts from Martin Luther King, as well as... Um, you know, this first-person account from a book called We've Got a Job, like, just exposing them to different kinds of text around a topic helps them, like, really bolster and build knowledge. Um, for me, though, like, it's, I really like when students have a chance to dig into a text that they read the first time and go, what is going on here? I have no idea. And through, like, multiple reads and conversations and discussion and a deep analysis, like, really giving a clear picture of what that author was trying to present. So, like, beginning of chapter two in Henry David Thoreau's Walden, um, where he says, you know, I, I went to the woods because I wish to live deliberately. And he lays out this argument about how people just rush every time they hear the church bell. Um, and they want to rush to see, maybe to put out the fire, but in truth also to let it burn um, or to watch it burn. And talks about how we kind of live like ants and how he says, like, I don't want to live that way. And the students read that text the first time and they go, like, I have no idea what's going on here. Like, 
there's a sentence that's like 15 lines long. Like it's, you know, so incredibly difficult. And, you know, Thoreau references so many different things. And, um, but by spending time diving into it and talking about it and questioning it, understanding this argument that Thoreau presents to us that like living a deliberate life doesn't necessarily mean moving to the woods. It's not a literal call to like put on a loincloth and move to the woods, but to be deliberate. Like later in that text, he says like, basically like, let's just let the bell ring and listen to it for a minute instead of rushing off to go see what's going on. Right. Like let's spend a day thinking about the day. Um, and seeing kids from Jen to Al, like kind of their light bulb go off and thinking about like how they rush from things to things rather than spending some time deeply thinking is extraordinarily powerful. Um, we read like the love song of J. Alfred Proof Rock, which is a really hard poem. Like it's long and it's cumbersome and it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't rhyme and, you know. You read it for the first time, you're just like, what the hell? Like, there's these mermaids and something about eating the peach, and I don't know. And then, like, again, through multiple reads and break the poem into pieces and talk about what's there, um, spending some time just figuring out what he's saying before, like, diving into it. And, like, when you see those kids go, oh, my God, he is in love with this woman. And he doesn't say it. Right. And, like, the moment in the poem and the moment that those kids go, like, he chickens out. <laughs> it's this beautiful moment um, where they realize that, like, not everything is just the way that it looks, confusing and jumbled, right? You have to spend time and look at it. And when you do that, like, there's so many layers to unfold. Um, and ultimately, like, that is the metaphor for how we want people to look at the world, like, spend time with it and really think about it and make your own meaning out of it. Can you talk about, you know, we've talked about um, reading a lot. Uh, can you talk about the rhetoric that you used in your classroom and in the school? I know, you know, in the school there was a lot of, like, high expectations and rhetoric of, like, you know, kind of high expectations. Can you speak to that? Yeah, the school has a, had a series of, um, this is, the school has a series of kind of stock phrases, like no shortcuts, no excuses, um, cut the strings, like these phrases that like return kids the idea of where they're going. Um, there is no shortcut to getting a really good education, right? Like cutting the strings means like learning how to let go and do things on your own and learn to bolster your own independence, right? So rhetoric is only rhetoric if it's used to control. Um, I think like shared and common language and phrases can be hugely empowering for a community and a culture. And we, and we see that across cultures. Um, you know, we see that in football fight songs to, you know, protest chants, right? Like creating common language and sayings that resonate within a community are extraordinarily powerful. So reading is knowledge and knowledge is freedom sounds like 
rhetoric until kids spend time really thinking about what that means and spend time reading and returning to that thought again and again. So examining those kinds of common language, like no shortcuts, no excuses, like sound snippy and slogany. So you really think about it, right? Like we can't make excuses for not getting a good education, for not getting our work done, for not being respectful, for not like being the best person that we know ourselves to be, right? There is no shortcut around it. We just have to work really hard. Did you find that, you know, you changed a lot of your language choices uh, just kind of in the day-to-day teaching within the classroom there? I mean, I think a good teacher is a fantastic stage performer, right? Like, you don't speak the same way or move the same way or talk the same way or do the same thing that you do in normal life that you do in front of a classroom. Right? I watch videos of myself. This is a hilarious video of me teaching Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. And I watch myself and I'm like, I'm horrified because it doesn't look like me or sound like me. My mannerisms are completely different. My facial, I look, my face just makes these like wild expressions. Um, it's a performance, right? It's a performance for a purpose, right? Like, you use your body and your hands and your voice and everything you can to like pull the kids in and keep them with you. Um, because it's hard sometimes. Like we're talking about really hard work. We're talking about kids who like have struggled with reading all their lives, sitting with texts that are like extraordinarily complex for students who do read on level. Right? So using stock phrases and using slogans and using whatever you can to increase the momentum and then like keep students with you. Can you talk about how, um, you know, in writing, you know, each person has their own voice and style, um, and you know, did you foster that? How did you, how did you foster that within these students who, um, you know, came in with uh, knowledge of the world that, uh, you know. They all had lived in the same, you know, a very are similar environments, um, I assume. Uh, but you know, came in with different reading levels and different writing skill levels on a technical level. How did you kind of foster their individual style and individual voice? I think writing is like anything; you learn to do it every single day, right? So having students write every single day is wildly important. Um, but just like reading where they need to like read books just because they're interested in it. Um, and if they feel like reading Harry Potter, read Harry Potter and like they can do that outside of class. Writing is the same way. Like they should be doing that writing. They should be journaling. They should be thinking, they should be putting their thoughts down. In class, they need to be writing about what they're reading. Um, because that's a different voice. Right. Like I look at, you know, I had like a weekly newspaper column when I was in high school and wrote about like why no one should ever have to wear a uniform to school ever, blah, blah. And I look at like the writing I did in Katrina Sandcastles and it's two completely different voices. But those voices come out of the purpose of the writing and through like a lot of like very tailored practice. Um, 
students need exposure to both, but the best way to become a great writer is to be a great reader. Um, no matter what you end up writing about, no matter what your genre ends up being, being a wildly excellent reader of a wide variety of topics and knowledge and types means that you can kind of tailor your voice to it. So like writing narrative is what we've often done with kids. I'm like write about your life or write a memoir. Like we need to do a lot more writing that's outside of that with students where they write persuasively using evidence from text that they've read. Um, so spending time, for example, like looking at all of the different references that Martin Luther King makes in Letter from Birmingham Jail. References so many different things. Like um, in Walden is the same way. Like Henry David Thoreau references a wild variety of things. Like so teaching students that like really good writing synthesizes so much more than just an opinion. It's bringing in so much knowledge. Um, so that's the battle, right, is to get them armed with enough knowledge so they can actually write eloquently, um, and that takes a lot of practice. How did you get students to write, uh, you know, on, I'm sure you did on a, on a daily basis, right? I mean, because um, you talked about how you know reading is very important, but then also writing is very important. So, did you encourage your students to write on a daily basis? Yeah, I think like in class on a daily basis, students, as we read through a text, I would pose a question to them about that text and say, like, just write your thoughts down. What does the text say about this? What are you thinking? What are you pulling out? Right. Then we'll have a discussion about what the students um, pulled out of the text. Um, and then they have a chance to go back and revise. So the process of constantly writing down thoughts, pulling ideas out of a text, talking about it with other people, um, and then revising your thoughts based on that conversation, like that is the process of learning, in my opinion. Right? The opportunity to like listen, have your mind changed, go back and revise it without judgment, is a really powerful experience for kids and focusing less on spelling and less on punctuation um, and a lot more just like on the ideas on the page. It's a really hard thing to do, right? It's really hard to look at a student's work and see like one giant jumbled run-on sentence and not just be like, oh, I didn't read it. It's mess. Um, but like reading for ideas and reading for knowledge and reading for like use of really good vocabulary and uh, reading for their work for like, did they learn something, right? Like, are they comprehending the text? Are they thinking about the text in interesting ways? Like, that's what we really want them to do. So I tried to spend a lot of time with kids doing that. Do you think that there's any, you know, I'm sure there are, but um, anything different about your classroom and uh, the way that you teach that could really, you know, change a lot of students' lives if that occurred in every classroom? Can I think for a minute? Yeah, definitely.
Okay, so yeah, the first thing that I would say is um, I spent a lot of time on quality over quantity when we were all together. Like quantity of reading is extraordinarily important, right? Like students need to read like widely around topics. But in class, like if you're going to choose a text that's worth reading because it's rich in vocabulary and rich in knowledge and they're really going to get something out of it, like you're not just going to read that once and blow by it and be done with it, right? Um, they may be able to say like Walden was talking something about how we shouldn't listen to the church bell the first time you read it. Um, it takes multiple reads. It takes time. And kids need time to think. Um, we spend a lot of time in our educational community, especially before the Common Core, like teaching kids strategies, right? Like um, today we're going to learn main idea. So we're going to read this short text and you're going to tell me what the main idea is. Or Today we're going to make inferences, or today we're going to um, learn author's purpose, and what's the author's purpose in this short text that you know we're going to read? We're going to practice that. Um, the inherent flaw in that kind of instruction, um, and that's the instruction that like I moved away from, and we need to move away from, is that like kids already know how to do the main idea. They already know how to make inferences. They already know the author's purpose. If you show them a like movie trailer. Or you allow them to read the transcript of a movie trailer with music in them. They can tell you all of that. What they can't do is do it in complex text, right? Because complex text is hard. So instead of spending time on strategy instruction, like I spent time on texts that were worth reading that were really complex and gave kids time to like really think about what they meant um, and design questions that like help them first understand the basics of what the literal meaning was and then, like, dive deep into, like, what the nuanced meaning is and, like, what the author is really presenting to us. Um, we rush so much in education because we think, like, we've got to get through all of this information. When actually it serves students so much more beneficially if we just allow them to spend time with a text worth reading and talk about it and write about it and really think about it because that's the work of college. That's the work of career. Like that's the work of like someone who is thinking. Um, I really encourage kids to spend a lot of time and in my classroom. I spent a lot of time on a text worth reading. Um, if we all did that, if we selected complex texts that like would bolster knowledge, um, that were rich and meaningful, um, I think our kids would be better served than reading these like short snippets of easy text that um, don't really teach them to do much more than like bubble an answer on a bubble sheet. Wow, that was a great response. Thank you. Sure. I mean, I have one more question, but is there anything else you wanna you wanna say? Uh, I don't think so. Except, um, like, I think this has been a super fun interview. Like, just to to circle back, like, anyone interested in what happened in New Orleans or what being a teacher is like should read the book. Mm-hmm. Um. I think it offers a different perspective on what it means to be a teacher and what happened here in New Orleans. Um, 
for me, like, I still cry when I read it because I think about the kids um, and where I failed them and the mistakes that I made along the way and, like, what I did with the best of intentions and, like, the kids that, like, were so successful in triumph and the kids that just broke my heart. Um, I think that story is an important one. So whether it comes through my words or someone else's words, like stories of kids who like overcome the most awful of tragedies like Hurricane Katrina, like poverty, like being excluded from our socioeconomic, um, being forgotten. Um, there's a section of the book where we like, I go and visit some schools that we tried to design schools early on after Katrina that like, were themed um, and like went to the school it's supposed to be repairing kids to like work in the service industry and you walk into a classroom and they're folding napkins right and what does that say to a kid when they go to school and learn how to fold a napkin right we have got to do better than that um, so in my mind like that's the story that happens in the book is the story of like the moving away from like folding napkins to truly doing what's right for kids We know what that is, really. We know what's right for kids when we really stop and think about it. Um, it's You have to have a lot of bravery to do it. Yeah. Where do you think, for you, that bravery came from? Um, I think when I think of myself as a teacher, um, I don't think of myself as very brave. Like I think myself, like often just like what drove me, especially as a new teacher is just being terrified of failure. It's the kids who are brave, right? The students that show up despite every single obstacle, um, and trust you as their teacher to make a difference in their lives and to teach them what they will need to be successful. Cause we promised them that, right? Like we tell this great lie to kids about like, just work hard and you can succeed. Like just work hard and you too can, you know, fulfill the American dream. It's a lie for so many kids um, who don't get the education that they need to even begin that path. Um, it's a glass ceiling, but it's very, very dirty. Um, so these kids show up and they trust you to prepare them for a world outside of their neighborhoods and outside of their walls and to prepare them to succeed in whatever path. Um, that in itself is an act of bravery. That level of trust is the act of bravery. A teacher's act of bravery is simply to say, like, I can do that. So I think, like, it's a, it's a mutually symbiotic bravery, maybe. What would you say to a student who feels like they're 
feels like they will never break through the glass ceiling and feels like they should give up to inspire bravery in them. Yeah, that's the trick, right? Um, I write about a student in my book who, like, wrote to me in his journal, um, like, what is all this reading going to do for me when, like, this reading can't stop a bullet? As I wrote back, like, it can, just not in the way that you think. So it's, it's that level of, that's what we're up against. Right? This idea of like working so incredibly hard every single day against deficits and against poverty and against racism and classism um, and still telling kids that it's worth it. What I always said to kids is that like no hard work is easy, <laughs> but no hard work isn't worth doing. Right? Like if this were easy, everyone would be doing it. Right? If being truly free were easy, then we would all be truly free. But we can look around in our community, we can look around in our society and see that we're not truly free. Um, the only way to get free is to build up your knowledge to a point where you can make the right decisions. Um, and that takes time. So I think this idea of time is one that's very important and it's one that we don't really talk about a lot because we feel so pressured all the time. We only have a few years to take kids from where they are to where they need to be and often they come with just frightening deficits. Um, but I think sometimes we get so caught up in time being bite-sized pieces and kids get so caught up in time being these little like Pac-Man bite-sized pieces, check the box, check the box, check the box, check the box, move forward that we forget that like truly building knowledge takes time. Um, and we need to slow down a little bit and instead of trying to build knowledge like Pac-Man, like what is it truly, like what do we truly want kids to be thinking about and spend our time there? What would you say to a teacher who is afraid to slow down and take the time and get um, intimate with texts with students and what would you say to inspire that? I mean, often I want to call on all of our better natures and simply ask them, like, what do you want kids to be able to do at the end of their time with you, right? If you want them to be able to pass the state assessment and that's the goal, then you are going to teach in small little Pac-Man bite-sized pieces. However, those short-term gains don't serve children. Moreover, Spending time with complex text and teaching kids how to spend time with complex text also helps them on the state exam 
and also helps them on things like the ACT and also helps them when they get to college to write their first thesis paper, right? Like giving a child a text at a level that you have defined them at is in and of itself a fallacy, right? Because we don't have a reading level based on a number. We have a reading level based on whether or not we can access the knowledge and vocabulary in the text enough to comprehend it, right? So giving the student a number and saying you're at a fourth grade reading level is in and of itself a fallacy because if that student is really, really interested in dinosaurs, they can read a text that's much, much harder about dinosaurs than they may be able to do about sugar plantations in the Caribbean because they have no reference point or knowledge around that yet. Um, so rather than spending time trying to define kids with reading levels and feed them little Pac-Man pieces that might help bolster their quotas about reading levels, let's spend time on textbook reading where they're going to build knowledge and they're going to build vocabulary around topics over time, which will serve them no matter what they end up doing in the future. Thanks for that answer. My final question is, um, you know, if you could give someone who is going to read your book two or three other texts, texts um, to read before reading your book so that your book could have the greatest impact, what would those be? Um, so they might be kind of wild, um, but in the back of the book is actually a page of suggested readings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I might actually pull from those. Um, Pima Chodron, When Things Fall Apart, is fantastic. Um, I think the idea of like continuing to try and like letting go of failure and moving forward, um, accepting things for what they are in the present rather than looking back is like hugely resonant both in that text as well as in my text. Um, Jonathan Kozel wrote a book called Savage Inequalities, um, which is kind of a, like a quintessential text about just how underserved some of our population is. Um, and then I, I might also read Well, oh, there's so much. There's so many. <laughs> um, Chris Rose wrote a book called One Dead in Attic after Katrina. Um, that was published like just a couple of years after the storm that describes like many of the experiences of people here in New Orleans after the storm, um, which I think is really powerful. So I think those are kind of a strange, broad spectrum. Like one is about, you know, education in this country and kind of a, a history text of that, like um, Savage Inequalities is a really important book to me when I first became a teacher. Um, Chris Rose's book just gives you some like pretty clear perspective and stories on like what it was like to be here during and after the storm. Um, and I still read Pima's book all the time. Like it's a, it's a place of, of reference to like remind us that like, this work is hard and all work is hard, but things that are hard are also very, very important and worth doing. 
thanks for those responses. Um, you know, this show plays to a college campus and to a wider community, too. Um, but it, it does play to this uh, small liberal arts college in the state of Washington. Um, what would you say to a student here about anything? But, you know, if you could say something, what would you say? Uh, I think um, message to college students probably would simply be like, question everything. Like, until you are armed with enough knowledge to truly question, like, you aren't truly ready for the world. Like, so question everything that's being told to you. Like, use the time that you have. It's such an amazing time <laughs> to be in college and, like, kind of free from, like, what the public school system may or may not have done to you or for you, um, but before you actually have to grow up to, like, question everything and don't go into debt if you can possibly avoid it. <laughs> as, as, a, like, as a teacher to college students who, like, may read Katrina Sandcastles or um, maybe trying to think about what they want to do with themselves, like, if you care about equity, if you care about this country, if you care about equal rights, if you care about kids, if you care about your community, like consider being a teacher. Um, it's the greatest work that we have to do right now in this country is to create literate and well-educated and well-balanced people who question and think and read with a critical eye. Um, and all those things are important, and as a college student, you know that that's really important. Um, the best work you'd possibly do is to give that to others. Okay, thank you so much for this incredible interview. It's been really fun, Julio. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Nonfiction Show with Julio Scarce on KWCW Walla Walla 90.5 FM. Have a nice day. You are listening to The Nonfiction Show with Julio Scarce. I am speaking with Casey Eckhart, author of Katrina's Sandcastles.